You're listening to the Magnum version of the Savage Lovecast at savage.love. If you're stuck in a relationship quandary, or if you're looking for sexual harmony, So there's what I wanted to talk about at the top of this week's show. And then there's what I kind of gotta talk about at the top of this week's show. Here's what I wanted to talk about and what I would have talked about exclusively at the top of this week's show. If we lived in a country where a right once secured, like the right to control your own reproductive system or the right to vote or the right to marry was actually secure You know, if it was recognized as a right that, while perhaps long denied, now that it has been secured, cannot be yanked away. If that was the country we lived in, then I could dedicate the entirety of the opening of this week's installment of my Dirty Little Sex Advice podcast to the bomb squad that was called into a hospital in Gloucestershire in the UK after a man walked in with a bomb or waddled in with a bomb because this bomb wasn't strapped to this man's chest. This bomb was in his butt and it wasn't your average bomb. It was a world war II mortar shell in his butt. How'd that happen? Well, the man claims he was clearing out something, a shed, a drawer, a kitchen cabinet. The stories don't say what, when he found this mortar shell during the clearing out process and That's an enormous anti-tank bomb used in World War II, mostly in Africa. And so he carefully set this mortar shell on the floor and then very clumsily fell on it, he says, causing it to lodge itself in his rectum. So how'd that happen? He didn't do it. Gravity did it. All the stories I could find about this described the man as a military enthusiast, which would seem to be putting it mildly. This happened, this man waddled into a hospital with a bomb in his ass, a month after the publication of what was regarded at the time a month ago, forgive me, as a bombshell report itself about the amount of money Britain's National Health Service spends every year removing quote-unquote foreign objects from British rectums. The BBC reported nearly 400 rectal foreign body removals are performed each year with an annual cost of 338 1,819 pounds, illustrating the effect this has on NHS resources. Conservative British politicians tried to distract voters in the UK from the ongoing disaster that is Brexit and corruption scandals that have been breaking out like mad recently by complaining about all those foreign objects having to be removed from all those British rectums at great cost to the British taxpayer. But as an earlier report pointed out, when I stumbled over while making notes for the story I wanted to talk about at the top of this week's podcast, which would be this one, Britain's National Health Service spends three million pounds a year removing foreign items from ears and noses, which makes rectums seem like a steal. Anyway, that would have been a fun topic to open the show with. This, you know, sex advice podcast where we like to keep the opening fun We don't get to do a World War II anti-tank mortar bomb inserted in someone's butt level of fun and light to open the show every week, but wouldn't it be nice? Okay, now here's what I got to talk about at the top of this week's show. The U.S. Supreme Court 
nine justices, the majority of them appointed by presidents who lost the popular vote, three by Trump, two by George W. Bush, the Supreme Court, most likely going to strike down Roe v. Wade, the 1973 decision that recognized that women have a constitutional right to abortion. Abortion won't be banned nationally if Roe is struck down. This isn't the passage of the Human Life Amendment that Republicans were pushing in the 1980s. But striking down Roe will allow states to regulate abortion even more strictly than it's already regulated. And roughly half of the U.S. states are going to ban abortion the instant Roe is overturned. There are laws in place that go into effect the instant Roe is overturned in half the United States. Now, it goes without saying but I'm going to say it anyway, that wealthy women, the wives and daughters and mistresses of male Republican politicians, for example, they're still going to be able to get abortions. They will fly to New York or Chicago to go shopping for a weekend and get an abortion. But poor women, women of color, women who've been raped, victims of incest, trans men who are likelier to be living below the poverty line than cis women are going to be forced to give birth against their wills. Many of the laws about to snap into place have no exception for rape or incest. So a 12-year-old girl in Texas whose father raped her will be forced to give birth. A quick aside, if I may, to gay men out there who don't think this is about us. For gay men who are, for reasons I don't understand, pro-forced birth or pro-life. Roe. That decision in 1973 was grounded in the recognition of a right to privacy, which is not a phrase that appears anywhere in the U.S. Constitution. It's a right that has been read into the U.S. Constitution again and again over the last seven or eight decades. The right to privacy, previous courts ruled, can be discerned in the Bill of Rights. That's what's being rolled back here. The right to privacy, to a zone of privacy, to bodily autonomy, And it's not just Roe that relies on this recognition of a right to privacy inferred or implied in the Bill of Rights in the U.S. Constitution. Griswold versus Connecticut, which found that states could not ban contraception, right to privacy. Lawrence v. Texas, which declared sodomy laws unconstitutional. Those were laws banning gay sex and non-procreative straight sex as well, but mostly gay sex right to privacy. Obergefell, the Supreme Court decision that legalized same-sex marriage in the United States, right to privacy. So my fellow gay guys, if you enjoy not being arrested for having sex with your boyfriend in your own apartment, if you like being married or the possibility of one day being married, overturning Roe is a threat to you too. This is the same court, pretty much a couple of new, more conservative additions, pretty much the same court that gutted the Voting Rights Act. So anti-choice, anti-woman, anti-gay, anti-black, anti-anyone-but-white-people voting, women, queer people, people of color, people who'd like to vote or use contraception. We have a common enemy here. They're coming for all of us. We're all in this together. And by this, I mean the rights crosshairs. In it together. So what can you do? What can we all do? We can fight. We can fight back. But right now since we all can't get in a time machine and go convince our friends to vote in 2000 and 2016, like judicial appointments mattered right now, we can stock up, go to shareabortionpill.info, go to plancpills.com, send those websites to your friends, send your friends to those websites. They can overturn Roe 
But you know what they can't do? They can't return us to the days of back alley abortions or coat hangers. We have abortion pills now, and they're safe, and they're effective, and they can be ordered online and self-administered. There's tons more information at both those websites, shareabortionpill.info and plancpills.com. If you live in a red state, you're going to want to get your hands on some of those pills and do it now for you if you ever need them or for a friend or a sibling or a child. And they can be safely stored and used for up to five years. I'm going to get my hands on some and I'm going to encourage everyone out there to do the same. Even if you live in a blue state, I'm going to get my hands on some. I'm gay. I probably won't ever need them myself or for a sex partner of mine, but I'm going to get my hands on some because I have nieces and nephews who are growing up in red states. And if one of them ever needs an abortion, one or both of their gay uncles are going to be on a plane with those pills in our carry-on bags in 10 minutes. And there's not a damn thing the Supreme Court can do about it. Okay, coming up on today's show, tons of your cues, lots of my A's, and on the Magnum edition of the Savage Lovecast, the Magnum Savage Lovecast, more calls, more guests, no ads. Dr. Ashley Winter comes back on the show to talk about Peyronie's disease, a disease of the dick, what it is, and what can be done about it. Also coming up at the holidays, give the gift of, well, me, I guess. You can grab your loved one's tickets to Hump 2021 at humpfilmfest.com, or you can gift someone a Magnum subscription to the Savage Lovecast at savage.love, or you can order a copy of my new book, Savage Love from A to Z, wherever books are sold. Oh, and abortion pills also make great stocking stuffers. Once again, Go to shareabortionpill.info or plancpills.com for more info on getting yours. And now let's get to the show. Hi, Dan, Nancy, and the Tech Savvy at Risk Youth. I am a late 20s caller from New York City, and I'm calling with a question about having a partner who is in the kink community. So my boyfriend is really great. We've been dating for a few months, um, and he was very upfront with me about his interest in kink. And I had only ever had vanilla sex before, but I, from being a Magnum subscriber, I knew to be GGG would be better for both of us. And I found out I'm kind of into it too. So we've been having a lot of fun with me topping him, using some restraints, some light, you know, a little, little hair pulling and things like that, some light degradation. It's all been fun. Um, but I, I know that he's very much more vested in the community than me. So he gets invited to a lot of kink events. And I told him I'm totally fine with him going to those alone because I am not ready. I'm not there yet, but I understand this is just his special interest, just like my special interest is watching The Real Housewives of Salt Lake City. So recently he did go to one of those parties and he told me about it afterwards, had a great time, you know, getting hit with a flogger, tied up, all that fun stuff. And um, he told me he was playing with this woman who he had known for a while. They're kind of like good acquaintances. It's not really sexual, but I guess it kind of, I don't even really know, but he was mentioning to me, he was like, oh yeah, no, it was great. I haven't seen her in a while. Also, she, um, wants me to come over and clean her house because it's something called uh, service subbing, I think. And for some reason, that kind of made me bristle because I was like, well, I'm at your apartment a lot. Your house isn't that clean. And you would kind of do that for somebody else before, you know, taking care of your own self and your space. And I mean, 
he's an adult and he can do whatever he wants. And if this is something that brings him like a joy or satisfaction or really gets him off, I think that's great. I just don't know why I'm having kind of this, <laughs> this bitchy reaction. Like, I don't know if I'm jealous. I don't know if I just don't understand. And it's very possible that I don't. I really want to be in a place where we can be sexually open and also, you know, just allow each other to explore what they want to do. But for something like that, when maybe, you know, it might be hard for me to see him serving someone else in a way that feels kind of sexual when he might not do it for himself or, or you know, me for that matter. Um, <laughs> I'm sure he would if I asked, but... I just want to know, are these feelings of, of maybe jealousy or questions normal when you're just learning about kink and you're dating someone who's much more into it? And does anyone have any tips on how to kind of get through that and support your partner in something that they want to do? First thing I want to say is you're doing great. You met a kinky guy or a guy who it turns out is kinkier than you are. You've discovered a few kinks of your own dating him and he enjoys big kink events and you don't. And rather than forcing him to choose between these big kink events where he's allowed to express a part of his sexuality that's very important to him, but choose between those events and you, you've allowed him to attend those events and you're not shaming him. It's not a DADT situation where he can attend the events as long as he doesn't tell you about them. You want to hear about them. And yeah, you're doing great at this GGG stuff. So he shares this one thing with you and you have this a odd, unexpected reaction that feels like jealousy and you want to know what to do about it. And, and I think the right thing to do here is to kind of laugh about it with him, to point out the, I don't think it's an absurdity necessarily, but to point out the fact that he's going to go clean this woman's house when he doesn't really keep his own house clean. And since you're sharing that space with him, at least some of the time now, Keeping that space clean is something that he could do not just for himself, but could do for you. Now, cleaning her house probably sounds like more fun to him than cleaning his own might, because at least right now, cleaning her house probably involves a collar and a butt plug and maybe an orgasm or a spanking as a reward if he does a good job or a poor job or both. Maybe he gets an orgasm and a spanking if he does a good job. And maybe just gets a spanking if he does a bad job and maybe a ruined orgasm. You explore DS stuff together. So it seems like an easy fix for you to propose a little bit of this service subbing for you. You ordering him to clean your apartment since you know that he enjoys being ordered to clean a space. But also before you come over to his apartment for him to clean it top to bottom as a show of respect for you and submission to you. So rather than regarding this woman as a rival or this woman, you know, resenting her for getting something out of your boyfriend that you're not getting this kind of service, also this kind of consideration, you can point to the absurdity of the situation and then turn it around on him and be grateful to this woman because now, because she raised the issue really by asking him to be her service sub now you're going to get a little bit of that service yourself. So maybe you're not going to run into her at a kink party because you don't go to them, but you might want to send her a thank you note. Hi, Dan and the Tech Savvy at Risk Youth. Me and my friend Bryony are here and we were 
just playing with my dog's bone that you can probably hear him chewing and it has a hole in it. Briny stuck her finger in it and I told her that was really gay. And then we started talking about pegging. And why is pegging so conditionally called pegging? Like, why can't it just be called anal sex? When with lesbians, like, fucking someone with a dildo is sex. Like, if you're a gay man, it's sex, but it, it has a penis. Is it only straight men? Is it only for straight being men? Being fucked by women? Yeah. Explain, please. Yeah, pegging is sex. Pegging is a kind of sex. You know, you say gay guys, when they have anal sex, just say that they've had sex. Yeah, but gay guys talk about tops. They talk about bottoms. They talk about subtops. They talk about power bottoms. They talk about protected, bareback, DP. When you get down into the nitty gritty, when you want people to understand what kind of sex you're having or that you are asking for, that you want to have, or that you had and you want to talk about with your friends, you got to say something a little more specific than we had sex. You know, straight people say we had sex and straight people think that all straight people mean by that is PIV. So if a woman and a man just, you know, had a pegging session, she fucked his ass with a strap on dildo, but that woman and man, all they tell you or all your friend tells you is they had sex. You're just going to assume PIV unless they give you more information, unless they have other words and phrases to describe the sex acts that they enjoy. And so, yeah, yeah, I absolutely agree with you. Pegging is just sex, but it helps to have lots of different names and phrases and terms for all the different kinds of sex two people can enjoy or, or more people, three, four, five, 20 people can enjoy. You can conjure up a mental image of a pegging conga line that goes on forever. Now, uh, if you're really interested, you want a deeper dive on the history of pegging, how it came to be named that, pick up my new book, Savage Love from A to Z, P is for pegging. There's a whole chapter in Savage Love from A to Z on pegging. Uh, the reason we came up, me and my readers together, I didn't name it, my readers named it, was because I was getting a lot of letters in the early mid-90s about women fucking men in their asses, men's asses, with strap-on dildos, and a lot of questions from guys who were curious about having their asses fucked by women wearing strap-on dildos. And this was kind of a crossover from lesbian communities. In the 90s, these woman-owned, sex-positive, queer-positive, often owned by lesbians, sex toy stores started to open and straight people wandered into them and they saw the lesbians buying strap-on dildos to fuck each other and they thought, hey, we could maybe give that a whirl. And because of the word count in my column, constantly having to repeat the phrase, I am a straight man, I'm interested in being fucked in the ass by a woman wearing a strap-on dildo, it ate up a lot of my word count. This is before the internet, where there's your, your word counts are infinite, just like that mental image of the conga line of an infinite number of women pegging an infinite number of men in their asses that goes on forever. You know, on the internet, your word count is infinite, but in print, it was 1,200 words a week. And constantly having to write about a woman fucking a man in the ass with a strap-on dildo was eating up a lot of my word count. And I challenged my readers to come up with a name for that, for that specific thing that so many of my straight readers were writing to me about and chewing up my word count. And there were several suggestions, including Bob. There was a popular series of pornographic videos, instructional pornographic videos at the time called Bend Over Boyfriend, B-O-B, Bob videos. But a reader suggested pegging, peg, pegging, pegged, got pegged. 
And I let my readers vote on it, and they chose it, and it stuck. I fully expect that one day it will be in the OED. But language is not a static thing. A lot of people now use pegging to refer to anybody fucking anybody in any orifice with a strap-on dildo. I support that broader definition of pegging, that broader use of pegging, but originally, and when most people use it now, they understand it to mean a woman fucking a man with a strap-on dildo. That is the original definition, and it's a helpful one. We need those words and phrases. We need to be able to say something more than just, I had sex, we had sex. Because knowing someone had sex, eh, tells you a lot, doesn't tell you everything. Hey, Dan, I have a question. At home, I have one of those toilet seat bidets that you can attach to your toilet. And I've discovered that if I position just right, the water can go up inside my butt and I can hold it in there for a minute and, you know, flush it out. And um, I've been doing it a lot and I'm kind of wondering if this is bad for me or not. Uh, I'm not really even into butt stuff. I just like the idea of a clean butt and... I don't know if doing this on the daily is a bad idea or not. And uh, also this might be helpful to some people out there wanting to um, prep for butt stuff. Wow, that's one skilled butthole you have there. You're in control of it. You can open up and relax a little bit enough that that stream of water from what I hope is your tushy bidet goes into your rectum, fills up your rectum, and then you can clamp down. You can close your butthole off turn off your tushy bidet, hold the water, and then release it. Congratulations. You are douching, anal douching, unnecessarily since you're not into butt stuff, but you will have a squeaky clean butt if you continue to douche in that manner. Uh, So long as you're not pushing water way, way up, so long as you're not giving yourself really deep, high, powerful power washing enemas, which can, if you do that on the daily, Uh, interfere with your own ability, your body's ability to uh, have bowel movements naturally. You know, sometimes a deep enema is a way to treat constipation, but constant deep enemas can induce constipation. Kind of a paradox, but you're not doing that. You're just giving yourself your rectum, your rectal cavity, the, the one just inside your sphincters, a little bit of a flush. Not gonna hurt yourself not going to do yourself any damage. And if you suddenly do decide to get into butt stuff on impulse, your butt will be ready to go. Hi, Dan. I am a 35-year-old straight female. I am single. So last Friday night, I had a little bit of wine with my roommate, and I opened LinkedIn, which I never use. And I noticed that this uh, this instructor of mine from a course I took a few years ago had added me. We don't have, uh, you know, like any social uh, connections or work connections other than him having been my instructor. And I am mortified to say that in my little tipsy state, I wrote him a very formal because it was LinkedIn. So I figured you couldn't just like slide into the DMs with something romantic. So instead, 
uh, drunk me thought that it would be a good idea to write him a message saying that I was working on an anthropological project about uh, cultures in the greater Boston area. It had to do a little bit with what he had been my instructor in. This isn't true. I, I, I'm not working on an anthropological project like that. There is no organization that has tasked me with this. But he responded back like pretty much immediately with like a lot of excitement that he was so excited to help me with my project. And so it's really nice that he responded back. But now I just don't know what to do. Do I if I want to meet up with him, do I need to start a project like that? Or do I just ghost him? Because then that's really weird because it was a very formal – I'm a, I was actually impressed with how well written it was considering that I was so tipsy. But, yeah, I don't know what to do. Uh, do I just ghost him? Do I write back and say, I'm so sorry, I'm a psychotic and wrote you this gigantic lie just to get your attention? Or I don't, I don't, I don't know what to do. Do you think there's any chance he added you on LinkedIn because he was into you? I mean, I think that was my initial thought. I was excited when I saw that he had added me. It had been like a year since I had uh, been in the class. So I think I wanted to like ride that momentum when I saw that he added me. <laughs> yeah, not the momentum you wanted to ride, dot, 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 excuse me, <laughs> no. nudge, nudge. Uh, you have no, your only choices here are to ghost or to come clean because you know, if you make up a project to meet with him, if you keep, you know, advancing the lie that you told him, eventually he's going to find out. And, you know, it could be a meet cute story that I told a lie to get your attention. Ha ha ha. Now that I've got it, like maybe I can drop this ruse. But if you draw that out for three months or six months and then he finds out he's going to feel manipulated and possibly humiliated, and that's going to fuck up what could be a very nice relationship. I mean, eventually he's going to know the truth. Right? <laughs> that's a good point. I mean, I I guess in my head I was thinking maybe I could do this project, <laughs> you know, just to <laughs> just, you know, it's something I'm interested in, I guess. Um, yeah, I don't know. I just don't want to seem like totally unhinged. Um and I think you say that. Because it was quite an involved proposal. You, you like, say that. Look, but, this is going to make me sound completely unhinged. It's just like acknowledging awkwardness. Like, this is awkward, makes it less awkward. If someone says, you know what, this is going to make me seem completely unhinged, at least you then know that they have the self-awareness to realize that it makes them seem unhinged, which makes them paradoxically seem a little less unhinged than they might otherwise Okay. And it, well, that's a good point. And if it's disqualifying, you know, if you like spun this bullshit project out in the hopes of getting his attention and he's offended by that, okay, well then it'll never work out anyway. Yeah, that's, that's very true. I guess I'm not, you know, losing anything, I guess, by coming clean. Uh, and I really just don't have the bandwidth to take on an anthropological <laughs> project not on my plate. And, uh, you know, you can also, you know, if I was going to game out the language with you, if I was your bestie and we were sitting there writing the email together, you could, in addition to saying, this is going to make me seem unhinged and now I'm really embarrassed and I'd had a glass of wine, slip in there somewhere. I hope you can see the compliment in here. Like I took a lot away from your class. Obviously I learned a lot. If I was able to like just off the cuff, think of a research project that might attract your attention. That's because of you. And yeah, if you can forgive me and see past this like moments 
insanity <laughs> induced by a good Chablis. Uh, I'd love to go out on a date with you. And maybe that's why he added you on LinkedIn. LinkedIn isn't typically a site where people troll for pussy, but some people do use it that way. Some people use everything that way. And maybe he was into you. That's why he looked you up. Well, I love that. All right. Well, I'll give it a, I'll give it a shot, Dan. Thank you. And then give us a call back and let us know how it went. Okay, perfect. Thanks so much. Bye. Hey, Dan, a straight woman in the Bay Area. What's your opinion on forgiving bad early sexual experiences with a partner? I recently got out of a relationship of like a year and a quarter with someone who I had a really rocky start to sec- uh, with sexually. First time we had sex, he like just stuck his dick in me with no foreplay, like just was really bad. Um... I talked to him the next day about it, basically said, like, that was unacceptable. I just, that that can't happen again. <laughs> and he was understanding and open to what I had to say. And, you know, we improved it and, you know, got it to a much, much, much better place uh, with a lot of work. <laughs> but that negative first impression and the fact that this particular person told me he had slept with hundreds of women uh, before me and that initial first impression of like why he chose to show up that way sexually for me at the first time and also like am I the first person to have said anything about this like did he do this with hundreds of women and like I'm the first person to say that that wasn't okay and those kind of thoughts just I I couldn't get over them even though the actual sex we were having got so much better and he like learned what I was talking about and like why that was just not good sex and I just ultimately like couldn't get over that negative impression of him and what that meant about who he was and yeah I just couldn't see myself with him I think because of that really bad first impression even though it improved a lot so my question is are there just some things that aren't forgivable early in a sexual relationship is this kind of a me issue you know this might be just my own personal boundary that that my partner has to show up with a certain amount of sexual skill. Um, I don't know. What What do you think? Would love to hear your thoughts. Of course there are things that someone might do during a first sexual encounter that are unforgivable. And that's a subjective standard. Uh, uh, you know, people engage in acts of intimate violence in first sexual encounters or people young, experienced, stupid, or experienced, selfish, malicious, bust out moves that any idiot would know require some pre-negotiation and consent, like choking, which too many people are just going for during sex because they've seen so much of it in pornography. Seen it represented as something that everybody enjoys and you just sort of do. And a lot of people do enjoy it. And so it could be the case that some people are busting that move and getting a positive reception. And then moving on to the next partner who is traumatized 
by that move and cannot forgive it and should not be expected to forgive it and does not have to forgive it. Okay, as for your situation, as for this guy that you just got out of this relationship, I guess uh, I have to assume that on some level you were able to forgive him. You were willing to work with him on improving his sexual skills over the last year. And now that the relationship is over, I imagine that you're seeing that first encounter through the prism of the end of the relationship. And perhaps you're reassessing your decision to stay with him in light of how terrible that first sexual encounter was. And I think that you did forgive him and perhaps now you regret forgiving him because you, maybe if the relationship ended and you were happy about how it ended or how it played out or how he treated you in other ways, you now realize that what you invested in him was a waste and you should have cut him off immediately. You should have dumped him immediately. You should have gotten up and left immediately after he threw his dick in you without any foreplay or preparation, stuck his dick in you. Yeah, that is lousy sex. And this guy says he slept with hundreds of women. Huh? Were you the first one to say something? Maybe. And it took you until the next day to say something. I've been there. I've been flat on my back with a guy about to penetrate me who thinks he can just go for it. I squirm away in those moments. I am a man. I was socialized differently. I have been there. I've been exactly where you were. And the words that come out of my mouth at that moment are like, hey, what do you fucking think you're doing? Uh, no, excuse me, just a moment, please. You were socialized as a woman to defer to men, not to say no to men, to prioritize men's feelings over your own. And you endured it. And then you worked up the nerve the next day to say something. It's plausible. It stands to reason there are lots of women out there he did the exact same thing to who never said a word to him about it. Maybe they never saw him again, or maybe they continued to date him and continued to allow him to do this. But yeah, yeah. I don't think your reaction in the moment as it was happening is an outlier. I think a lot of women would have reacted the way that you did. There was something about him where you thought you wanted to see him again, but you certainly didn't want to endure that kind of terrible, lousy, awful sex again. And so you decided to speak up, to say something. And maybe you've done a favor to all the women he's going to date after you. Or maybe he's a selfish asshole, knew he couldn't get away with that with you anymore, and so stopped, paid attention to what you were telling him he needed to do if he wanted to continue to have sex with you. But now that you're out of his life, perhaps he's going to revert to form and try this on other women. Hopefully not. Hopefully you broke him of this. Hopefully you left him in better shape than you found him. He can't say the same about you because that first experience now in the wake of the end of the relationship, it looms larger. And you obviously now feel conflicted about it in a way that maybe six months ago when you were still investing in this guy, you didn't feel so conflicted about it. So I think what you need to do going forward is make up your own mind about what is and isn't forgivable. I would encourage you, if you're ever in a situation again where a guy is beginning to do something like just throw his dick in you, suddenly stick it in you, penetrate you without any foreplay or preparation, 
that you will remember waiting a whole day to say something to that asshole who did that to you before, and you will say something before that dick is in you about what that guy is trying to do, attempting to do, about to do, and come to your own rescue at that moment. Defeat your socialization as a woman at that moment. And then get the fuck out of there and don't see that guy again. The guy in the future, the hypothetical guy who tries to do the same thing this guy did. Because you now know that if you forgive that and make an investment and work on that guy who tries that with you in the future, some other guy, and the relationship comes to shit, you're going to regret it and feel conflicted about it and probably call me again. Hi, Dan. I'm a cis male Canadian listener calling because my dad has a medical condition related to his penis. It's called Peyronie's disease. Basically, it's a buildup of scar tissue that causes the penis to have a painful bend when the owner of said penis gets an erection. It usually stems from an historical injury. My dad finally worked up the courage to talk to me about it and has not been able to have a comfortable erection in over a year at this point. He also talked about treatment. The options he was given were very limited and very expensive. One was a surgery where they cut the opposite side of his penis to form symmetrical scar tissue in hopes that the bend is reduced and is less painful. It also shrinks the erection by a couple of inches. He was told that method has a 30% success rate and is in the tens of thousands of dollars. There's also another invasive procedure that has a similarly low success rate. He did hear about a laser treatment method to break up the scar tissue plaque that seems less invasive, less expensive, and has a slightly higher success rate as well. Do you or one of your medical experts know of what treatments would be best for him? And what, if anything, he could do on his own to help? And what I can do to prevent this from happening to me? Apparently there is some evidence of heritability. Joining me by phone to help tackle this call, Dr. Ashley Winter, board-certified urologist practicing in Portland. Hey, Dr. Winter, how are you? Hi, it's great to be here. How are you? Uh, Great. Thanks so much for coming back on the show. I really appreciate how generous you are with your time and your expertise uh, and that you will demean yourself by coming on my stupid podcast to talk about medical issues. Not at all. Not at all. (laughs) So Peyronie's disease, can you define that for folks? What, What is that? How common is it? Yeah, so your your caller got a, a few things right. It, it is a buildup of scar tissue or abnormal collagen in one of the layers of the penis called the tunica albuginea, and it can present in a variety of ways, but typically uh, is associated with some sort of curvature or change in the shape of the erection. Can be narrowing, you know, curved in any different way. Typically starts in the fifth and sixth decades of life, but it can happen at any age. What else? It's probably a lot more common than most people realize. We're thinking it's even as frequent as somewhere around one in 12 to one in eight men, previously thought to be really rare, but uh, may have been underreported in the past. It's not always painful, as your, as your caller said, and uh, oftentimes it isn't associated with a known injury meaning that it could happen without somebody being able to remember a specific injury. And sometimes, even if they do remember some time when they thought they injured their penis, it's probably recall bias, meaning that wasn't the thing that caused it. And and oftentimes thought to be due to what we call repetitive microtrauma, meaning that you're having, you know, some sort of 
traumatic bending during sex. And that's happening again and again over time and leading to this initiation of the abnormal scarring. But that said, we, we have never really proven that. And the difficulty in talking about all of this is that you don't want to make, you know, penis bearing individuals fearful that they're somehow going to end up with Peyronie's disease because they have insertion in a pleasurable way. So I'm kind of hesitant to say, you know, you're, you're going to do X, Y, Z and cause it to happen. It, it's weird to me that it's called called a disease because that makes it sound like cholera or HIV, like something you catch, something contagious. This is something that develops this buildup of, of plaque. And if it's as common as one in 12 men, in most instances, it must not be a big deal. Because if one in 12 men in their 50s and 60s found it unbearably painful to get an erection, as is the case with the caller's father and some men with Peyronie's disease, we would hear about that all the time. There would be a whole yeah. wing of the NIH that was dedicated to <laughs> curing this. You are totally right. It really should just be called Peyronie's condition. It is it is not something that has ever led to anybody's demise. Uh, I mean, unless they had, you know, uh, such bad mental agony over it that there was something else that, that was self-inflicted. Right. There have been cases of that. There have been cases of men with Peyronie's disease that was so painful and also shattering to their own self-image as men, to their egos. There are cases where men with really severe Peyronie's disease have committed suicide. Yeah. No, I mean, it, it is one of the more profound things that I see when these men come into the office is not exactly the spectrum of the condition. We treat it fairly algorithmically with the same fuel to few tools, but that there will be one guy who comes in the office and the penis is pretty curved, but he's like, you know, either A, I can still have sex or even B, I, I can't have sex in the way I used to have before, but intimacy is not defined by a specific set of moves or a particular angle of penetration if the angle of penetration has changed right exactly exactly and and so there are some guys who come in and they're just i, I literally the other day had a patient said to me you know this has actually been something that has allowed my uh, relationship to evolve and change and we have intimacy and sex in different ways now and i just thought that was actually a, a really beautiful interesting thing to say and then you have some else who has you know a minor indentation and it's really not causing any functional change. And, and they're just absolutely devastated. And, uh, you know, it's, it's one of those difficult things because as a urologist, I'm not so much of, uh, you know, like counselor. And oftentimes that really is a big part of, of the health impact on somebody is how they kind of view the, you know, the devastation quotient associated with changes in the appearance of their penis. Okay, so let, let, let's get to the caller's questions. What would your treatment yeah. recommendations be if his father's been briefed on some treatments and the success rates are so low, 30% for the trying to create balancing symmetrical scar tissue on the other side? Um, another invasive treatment was suggested it had a similarly low success rate. Are the laser treatments better? Where are we with treatments? What treatments do you prescribe? Yes. So I will go through as succinctly as possible, the main treatment. So the least invasive thing that I recommend to almost everyone who's willing to use it is to use a traction device. Uh, there are lots of ones out there. The main one I recommend is called RestoreX, RestoreX.com. I have absolutely no financial relationship to them, but it was developed by a guy at Mayo Clinic who's a urologist. There is data showing that that can lead to about a 30% improvement in curvature on its own, and it's not invasive 
So, you know, there's very little downside. It's annoying because you have to wear the device frequently um, and consistently to get a benefit, uh, but you can use it in conjunction with other treatments. So that's the first thing that was left out of the discussion his dad had with, with the doctor that he can consider and something that's certainly not thousands of dollars and most of the time successful, but not 100% uh, you know, successful in causing resolution. But you know, successful in causing improvement. So that's the first thing. You know, the second thing I always, almost always recommend is uh, the type of medication called PD-5 inhibitor, that's Viagra Cialis, uh, or uh, any other medication in that class, because there is good literature showing that even if you don't have erectile dysfunction, uh, kind of the improved blood flow and nitric oxide uh, in the penis associated with using those medications has actually led to improvements in uh, Peyronie's disease treatments, like making the treatments you do employ more effective. And also, oftentimes, if there is some kind of lingering erectile dysfunction in conjunction with it, it can be protective by maximizing the... That has to be a little scary for guys who find erections painful as a result of their Peyronie's condition. To induce an erection when yeah. erections are painful as a treatment sounds a little terrifying. No, that, that is a tough thing about it. The reassuring thing I would say, at least, is that, you know, most men with Peyronie's do have improvement of the pain, like 90% of the time by a year out, it is improved. I, you know, I guess this guy hasn't had improvement after a year, which which kind of sucks. But, uh, you know, I do advise at least trying things like taking NSAIDs, you know, ibuprofen, something like that before sex. Obviously, that's not a cure-all, but, uh, you know, something to just try. People don't usually, you know, think of having to like go to their medicine closet before sex for, for ibuprofen, but, uh, you know, something to just work into that. And, and backing and backing up just for a little bit, when you talk about attraction yeah. device for the penis, when I think of attraction yeah. device, I think <laughs> of all of those sitcoms where somebody would get into a car accident or a bike accident and then be in a hospital with their leg sort of pulled out in a way in a, an elaborate <laughs> traction device. And it's sort of like that, but for your penis, right? It's a little like box that your penis goes in that stretches it out from the head. A hundred percent. It is like that for your penis. It is a device you put on your penis. It stretches it out. It sound, I tell the guys it sounds like medieval torture. It's not so. Uh, it's really just a way of doing penis physical therapy. Uh, and it also has been shown beneficial to improve length, prevent length from being lost. And it's been studied in men after their prostates have been removed for cancer surgery that it can prevent loss of length or even extra length. So, you know, it's one of those, uh, like my husband always jokes, like if, uh, I don't know, you know, about the fact that men get so many emails about making their penis length longer. And like, this actually is something that works for that. It is probably the only thing that actually works for that uh, is using a traction device. But they are cumbersome. You can't use them on your commute. You can't wear one on the subway. You can't walk around the office with no. one. Uh, I, I've seen them. You have to basically put your dick in it and sit and watch television for a few hours at home oh, yes. you know, without company. Yeah, they are they are cumbersome and annoying, and it is not yes, it's not like you know wearing your Bluetooth headset and go about your life. It is it is annoying for sure, and it's not for everybody, but it is an important part of that discussion for sure. The next step of the Peyronie's treatment algorithm is something called intralesional therapy. That's where you're going to a urologist up to eight times and getting your penis numbed up, and then having medication injected indirectly into the scar tissue uh, to loosen it up. The main, well, the only drug that's technically FDA approved for that is something called Zyaflex. 
It's an enzyme that digests abnormal collagen. The problem is it's not available in Canada. Now, there are other medications that can be used in that way, and I use some of them when Zyaflex is prohibitively expensive. One of them is interferon. So that is something, if the doctor he talked about didn't offer him, he can try talking to some other urologist, because I do think some of the information he's been given is not exactly accurate, but that is one option. Similar efficacy is not going to make everybody 100% straight, but on average, you would make everybody about a 30% improvement in their curvature, and it definitely loosens up the scar tissue and can reduce pain. So that's an option. It shouldn't be expensive. You know, the injection at most should be like 100 to 200 bucks time, but if it's covered by your insurance, it really shouldn't be at all. So that's another thing. Now, in terms of this laser treatment, that is definitely not standard of care. If you look at our, the main guidelines on Peyronie's treatment by any of the major sexual health organizations like American Neurologic Association, the laser treatment is not mentioned anywhere. Uh, I even did some off-the-cuff research on this. There's very little data on it. I saw one trial where men by nine months after treatment with a laser had no improvement relative to men who had no treatment or treatment with a sham laser. Interestingly, if he's very wants to pursue a laser treatment, there is a clinical trial enrolling right now on using carbon dioxide laser on Peyronie's. And it seems like the principal investigator is based out of uh, Canada. But I always say if you're really interested in you know, having some sort of cutting edge treatment and potentially not having to pay for it, going to clinicaltrials.gov and searching what your condition is, is actually a really cool way to do that. And you can see what research is going on. And it's way better to be involved in the generation of new science than, you know, going to somebody who's offering you a treatment that's not verified. So that's something that's actually kind of cool. But that's all I have to say about laser. Uh, and then the last would be surgery. So he mentioned a surgery that takes the penis and makes it the same length on the two sides. That's called plication. It has the downside of making the penis shorter, but the upside is that of it is that it will just make you straight. So I'm not really sure why the doc gave him a really low effectiveness quote. I think it was like 30%. I quote men who want to do that surgery as 100% effective because it will just... I will not stop the surgery until I see that your penis is straight. Like I'll check your erection during the surgery and I will stop when it's straight. So it's a hundred percent effective. Um, now it's not for everybody again, because some men are really concerned about the loss of length associated with Peyronie's, but the change in length is not very significant most of the time. And if you have a good length and you just want to be straight and have it one and done over hundred percent success, it's a great option. Is there a hereditary component to Peyronie's? And if so, and you know your dad had it or has it, how do you avoid developing it when you get into your 50s and 60s? Great question also. So there definitely is a hereditary component of it. We haven't fully elucidated the pathway for that. Uh, definitely more common in Caucasian or white men. It is associated with a condition called Dupuytren's contracture, which we know is inherited. That's scar tissue in the palm of your hand. So if you have a bunch of, like your dad and they have a bunch of uncles who have scar tissue in their hand and their thumb is kind of sitting weird. You know, they may have Peyronie's also, and you may get it also. 
unfortunately, there's nothing you can do to prevent that. Now, there are some modifiable risk factors. So uh, associated with Peyronie's, meaning that men who are smokers have a much higher rate, like tobacco smoke, have a much higher rate of getting Peyronie's disease. And diabetes uh, is also associated with a much higher risk of getting Peyronie's disease. So, you know, basically, don't smoke cigarettes, you know, if you're overweight and diabetic, uh, because you're overweight, you know, losing weight. Uh, you know, good control of your blood sugar can reduce your risk of getting Peyronie's disease. So those are things that I just say in general, you know, these kind of healthy lifestyle factors are good for your health anyway, and they're good for your opinion. So, yeah. so just zooming out for the big picture for a second, why, if this is so common, do we hear so little about it? I mean, it must be something besides the fact that in most men's cases, it's mild and not debilitating or painful. But why, if it's one in 12 or one in 10 men, when you say Peyronie's disease to someone, they look at you blankly. It seems like if it's that common and potentially that debilitating, everyone would know what this was, that this would be common cultural knowledge, this this condition. And it's not. Why? Uh. Oh, Dan, I, this is a $100 million question. I, I fully believe that sexual dysfunction in a medical sense is so stigmatized and so underappreciated and under-discussed and um, underrepresented. And we have really liberalized our understanding of sex and sexuality and show different types of sex and sexuality. But I don't think we show as much things that are aberrant in, in sex or sexual health conditions, you know, and what I mean by that is I see this with Peyronie's, right? People just don't talk about it. Men who haven't don't talk about it. There's no awareness about it. But you also see this, for example, with like women, right? Women who have severe pain, for example, uh, you know, with menopause changes, and they don't even know that they can get help for it, you know, which is astronomically pervasive and a hundred percent of of women who are postmenopausal who are sexually active with pain can get help and it's not I, I see it all the time so uh, you know I, I'm kind of going on off on some on some diatribe about our, our cultural factors but I, I think predominantly it's just because we don't talk about sexual health the way we talk about other aspects of health Dr. Ashley Winter, board certified urologist practicing in Portland. Thank you so much for jumping on the phone. I really appreciate it. That was very informative and I'm sure for the caller, very helpful. Yeah, of course. My pleasure to be here. Hi, Dan, Nancy, and the tech savvy at risk youth. I am a 30 year old queer Asian male living in LA, and uh, my partner and I just separated. It's still pretty fresh, but it's something we've been talking about for the last few, several months. And I think I'm mostly okay with it because we separated amicably. We are still very good friends. We separated mostly because he has his own issues to work on and is currently seeking mental health support. And I just couldn't really consent to being in a relationship where we were inflicting traumas on each other as a result of our own unpacked trauma. So, you know, we're both getting help and support. But um, we also broke up because he basically fell out of attraction to me. And, and I know this happens a lot. How do I kind of get over the fact that this person that I love very dearly, that said that they love me very dearly, said that I am no longer what they are attracted to. The rational part of my brain, right, understands like this is just what happens. Sometimes people fall in and out of attraction with one another or in and out of love with another, and it's just the way relationships work. 
but the so human emotional raw part of me has been feeling really fucked up for lack of a better word because I don't know how to process the way I feel about me when it comes to having derived a lot of that from my partner and I guess a lot of that is my fault where I should be able to feel beautiful and feel attractive and gorgeous on my own but um it's hard to feel that way when the person you are in love with or you were in love with or whatever says that you are no longer desirable to them. Um, and I feel like I probably look the best that I have in years. And, you know, I might kind of change up my style a little bit, but overall I, I feel pretty attractive sometimes, but I can't get those words out of my head. And it's hard to, I guess, kind of see myself in a positive light, I guess, attractiveness wise. Um, with those words ringing in my head. I would file this under something we all know, but not something we ever really need to hear and not something a person who cares about us, even if they're ending a relationship, should say, should offer. Yeah, sometimes you fall not just out of love, but out of attraction. Sometimes desire for a, a partner even a partner you still have feelings for, fades or ends. If you have feelings for that person still, even if you're not in love with them, but you're considerate and kind and don't want to do a lot of damage on your way out, you just don't mention it. You don't go to the person and say, you know, as hard as it is to hear, I'm not in love with you anymore, not in the same way, not romantically, I don't want to be your partner anymore. There's no need to add on top of that. And it's because I'm not attracted to you, or I'm also not attracted to you physically or sexually anymore. I don't desire you in the same way or at all anymore. You don't need to say that part, but we all know it's true. We've all been there. We've all been not just in your position, caller, but in your ex-boyfriend's position, in a romantic, sexual, sometimes sexually exclusive relationship with someone that we don't feel sexual attraction for anymore. It is one of the chief reasons that people end relationships, particularly sexually exclusive relationships. And so we all kind of know that in the back of our head, but we don't want to be reminded of it. We all know in the back of our head that someone can lose their attraction, their sexual attraction for us. And we have to know that we should know that we should have the humility to be able to acknowledge that because we have fallen out of sexual attraction for others ourselves. So I feel like you need to build a wall around this. You need to say to yourself, I didn't need to hear that. He didn't need to say that. Maybe if he wasn't struggling the way he's struggling right now, he wouldn't have said that. That was a painful and necessary thing to be reminded of. And I'm just going to sort of build a wall around it and walk away from it, a high wall. So I can't see it or think about it anymore and just put it out of my mind. You say that you are feeling as attractive as you've ever felt. You feel really hot right now. And something about what your boyfriend said is undermining your self-esteem and your self-confidence. Okay. You were relying on your boyfriend to affirm your sexual uh, attractiveness. There are lots of other men out there who can play that role in your life. There are lots of other men out there who can affirm your attractiveness. Yours may be the case where that old adage the quickest way to get over someone is to get under someone else really applies. 
get yourself in the line of sight of a guy or a bunch of guys who are really into you, who make you feel attractive again, who can convince you, can, can offer you the affirmation that you are indeed hot. And that hot also is subjective and personal. And one person can find you hot and somebody else might not find you hot. That doesn't mean you're not hot. You don't find every man on earth hot. There's some men out there. You must have friends who find some particular types of guys attractive that you don't find attractive. That doesn't mean that the guys that your friends think are hot aren't hot just because you don't think they're hot. Well, you can be hot even if your ex-boyfriend doesn't necessarily find you as hot or to be hot in the same way that he found you at the beginning of the relationship. Hello, Dan, Nancy, and the tech-savvy at-risk youth. I am a mid-20s cishet woman in the Bay Area. I am getting my master's degree, but we are not in person. It is still online. And so I am wondering if you had any advice on how to flirt with a classmate that I think is really, really cute. Today, he was a little bit dressed up. Maybe he had a job interview or something, and I was just sitting at home steaming just adorable. But I have no idea how to approach him. Like, how am I supposed to flirt with someone on Slack? That seems weird. And we do live in the same town, so we could ostensibly get together for coffee or something, but I just feel so strange about it. And is it harassment to flirt with a classmate and It sounds like a bad idea either way, although we don't have any classes together next semester, so it does seem a little bit low risk in that regard. Anyway, if you have advice on how to approach a classmate, coworker, someone in that genre without it blowing up in your face or making anyone feel uncomfortable, I would love to hear it. With apologies to Daniel Patrick Moynihan, I am against defining sexual harassment down like this. Uh, Moynihan was the U.S. Senator from New York from 1977 to 2001, just tossing out a decades-old political reference to complement all the decades-old pop culture references that I'm constantly tossing out that have endeared me to Gen Z listeners. Anyway, what you describe doing, asking a classmate out on a date, expressing sexual and or romantic interest in your classmate to your classmate – That's not sexual harassment. You have no power over your classmate. You're not this person's professor. You're not this person's employer. You are equals. So how do you ask them out? You ask them out. You say, hey, I noticed we live in the same town. We're taking the same class right now. Would you like to grab coffee sometime or a drink? That's not sexual harassment. That's the expression of interest, asking someone that you have no institutional coercive power over out on a date is not sexual harassment. Continuing to ask that person out on dates after that person has said no, if that person says no, and they might say yes, well, that would be sexual harassment. Look, we don't want to live in a world where asking someone out is defined as sexual harassment. You know, we've defined sexual harassment down to the point where just asking someone out is sexual harassment. Because then... We're going to live in a world where the only people who ever hit on us or ask us out are people who are okay with sexually harassing other people. The good and kind and decent and thoughtful people will remove themselves from the dating pool. They'll never ask anybody out. It'll only be the people who don't care that'll ask people out. Look, 
I want to be clear. It is okay to express interest in someone, to ask someone out on a date. I think it's best to ask someone if they'd like to get coffee or a drink sometime. Everyone knows what that means. And it gives a person an out to say they're not, you know, they don't have time or whatever. They can make an excuse and say no if they're not interested in you in the same way or open to exploring the possibility that some interest will develop over coffee. And if they are, they'll say yes. But if they're not, they'll say no. And you know what? Sometimes being asked out is awkward, makes us uncomfortable. Being put in the position of having to reject someone, that can make us uncomfortable. Realizing someone we didn't think of with sexual or romantic interest was looking at us in that Zoom class, thinking of us with sexual or romantic interest, that can make us momentarily uncomfortable. But what's the alternative? To live in a world where no one ever asks anyone else out for fear of causing momentary discomfort or awkwardness? Also known as a world where no good, kind, thoughtful, decent people ever get laid? No one who isn't an asshole? Yeah, I don't want to live in that world, and I don't think you want to live in that world either. This doesn't mean that I think that men should ask women out on the street or on the bus or on the subway and that it isn't shitty behavior if they take no for an answer. Approaching a stranger, someone you have no reason to interact with in a public setting, that's kind of asshole behavior. And men should know that women are constantly approached just ask them out for coffee and then take no for an answer. You're not technically guilty maybe of sexual harassment in the aggregate. Being one of the 14 guys who did that that day feels like harassment, perceived as harassment by that individual woman. But asking a classmate out, someone you have interacted with, asking a fellow employee out, not someone you manage to go get coffee sometime, that is not sexual harassment. And it worries me that People out there now are starting to believe that any expression, however respectful, of sexual or romantic interest in someone else, if it's unwelcome, constitutes harassment. It does not. Refusing to take no for an answer, asking again and again and again, that constitutes harassment. So, caller, ask this cute, hot Natalie dressed the last time you saw him on that Slack channel classmate to meet up sometime for coffee or a drink. And if he says no, eh, it'll be awkward for him to say no. It'll be awkward for you to hear no. It'll be awkward and uncomfortable the next time you see each other in class. But he might say yes. And then, yay, two kind and decent people, presumably. Actually, I don't know anything about this guy or you really, but let's extend to both of you the benefit of the doubt. Two kind and decent people. We'll have met up at least for coffee and maybe something more. Hi, Dan. Just by lady calling for some advice. My partner and I have been together for a decade. After having our first child, he informed me that he was no longer attracted to my body type. And since then, despite attending counseling, we've had a sparse sex life for several years. We otherwise are decent partners, though. Um, and having many poly relationships before him, I proposed this as an option several years ago. But it's not come up again until now. After attending a festival this weekend, where everyone was COVID tested on entry, he came home to inform me that he'd met someone and wanted my blessing to pursue a relationship. Having no issues with sharing him with another person, we defined a set of guidelines, uh, one of which was my ask to not get details on the relationship. 
I should have trusted that instinct, but I didn't. And I creeped her on Facebook out of curiosity. Dan, she's the same body type as me. The same body type that he's professed to find unattractive for many years. And now I feel hurt and confused. And for the first time, I feel jealous. And I don't know how to dialogue this with him. So your boyfriend was lying to you then? Not being attracted to women of your body type? Which is a horrible, scalding thing to say. And I'm shocked the relationship survived him saying that to you. Or there's something about this woman of the same body type that he finds so attractive in other non-physical ways that his, it overrides his lack of attraction generally to women of her body type, women of your body type. The only way to find out what the fuck is going on is to go to your boyfriend and say, what the fuck is going on? You told me years ago, you were not attracted to my body type. And we have had a decent sexless companionate relationship and been good loving co-parents to our child for years now. And suddenly you want to date someone else because I raised the subject of potentially being poly. So we could seek sex outside the relationship with people who are attracted to us. And the person, the first person that you want to date is a woman of my body type. Can you see why that would be confusing and painful? And then see what his answer is. And brace yourself. If that was a lie, not attracted to women of your body type, it's possible the truth is something more painful, something that only a bigger asshole would say out loud to their partner who was in pain. Although I imagine it could also be something banal. You guys were together for six, seven years before you had a child, before he told you he was no longer attracted to women of your body type. It could be that just desire and attraction collapsed under the weight of the small grinding daily intimacy of cohabitation. There's a reason so much of what gets written about relationships or for people in long-term committed sexually exclusive relationships is about addressing sexlessness or the waning of desire, you know, how to get the spark back. So much of it is aimed at that dilemma because that dilemma is so common. Esther Perel writes very insightfully and very movingly about how a lot of what we want and what we get from long-term committed relationships, intimacy, familiarity, comfort, is the enemy of desire, which requires some feeling of distance or mystery. We want someone to make us feel safe and secure, and we want someone to be dangerous and unknowable, that same person. We want it all in one person. And it may be impossible to get that all in one person, boyfriend may have desired you and women of your body type at the beginning of the relationship may still desire women of your body type, but is just not sexually drawn to you anymore because he feels more like your sibling at this stage. Could you hear him say that out loud? If that was true and stay in this relationship, would that make it harder? Would that make it easier? Because it might be that, or it might not. I don't know what's going on in your 
boyfriend's head. Neither do you. But you know what we both know? An open relationship, a polyamorous relationship requires honesty. And right now we know that your boyfriend hasn't, you know, based on the evidence you have at hand, being able to see yourself in the mirror and be able to see pictures of this woman online, that your boyfriend has not been honest with you. And if he wants to be with you, wants to stay in an open, functioning, healthy, companionate relationship with you and be able to seek sex and perhaps sometimes romance with other partners outside it, he has to be honest with you. And he hasn't been. And you're hurting because of it. All right, before we get to listener response calls this week, let's read some listener tweets. JT Justman tweets regarding episode 788's opening rant. Let's not fat shame anyone, even fundamentalist wannabe fascists, please. That opening reeked of not to be racist, but dot, dot, dot. Hashtag Savage Lovecast. I hope I was clear in that rant that bodies come in all different shapes and sizes and hot comes in all different shapes and sizes. But the wannabe fascist I was talking about, well, he was judging trans people by the same conventional standards of beauty that he himself falls far short of through no fault of his own. I wasn't trying to fat shame. I was just pointing out the hypocrisy. I tried to qualify that and make that clear. But if I fell short and anyone out there listening felt fat shamed, I apologize. Naomi Kritzer tweets, the call from the woman who had a wonderful one night stand with a neighbor who died the next day reminds me of the Sarah Dessen book, Once and for All. Your listener might find it a worthwhile and validating read. The protagonist also struggles to explain to the people around her why she's grieving so deeply for someone she knew in person for a single night. It's a YA novel and a quick read that might make your listener feel seen, Dan. And finally, Aaron Marks tweets, For the refractory period guilty guy, I sensed more than just the physiological ick recoil. Could there be a component of discomfort with being exposed and vulnerable emotionally during sex, even in a great relationship with a loving partner? I guess that could be also a possibility. All right. Thanks to everyone out there who posted to social media about the Savage Lovecast this week, particularly big thanks to everyone who posted about the Savage Lovecast being their top podcast in their Spotify wrapped roundups. Thank you, Kara and Coach Darlene and Robert and James and everyone else. And thank you also to Samid for gifting a Savage Lovecast Magnum subscription to your buddy, Anton. All right. Now, listener response calls. Hello, response call for the person who is frustrated with their family members constantly misgendering them. I'm 35 years old. I have a lot of loved ones around me who are non-binary. And as much as I acknowledge and see them as non-binary, I definitely slip up sometimes. I really hate that I do. It's just after being used to using these very specific terms for so long, I feel like my brain just kind of glitches out once in a while. Uh, so it's, it's certainly something that I, I have to put a lot of conscious effort into, and that just slips by me once in a while. So I um, again, I hate that it does. I honestly kind of feel like it's like training a dog where there's just this importance in repetitive actions in order to get things to stick. I am much better than I was initially. And so just it can take time uh, for some people, especially older generations that spent so much time without having ever even heard these, um, you know, these concepts before. So I would say the family members who sometimes get it right, just a gentle correcting, which I really appreciate when people do for me. 
And for the family members who never will refer to you by your correct pronouns, I would say those are the ones that you need to have a tough conversation with about respecting your, um, you know, your preferred pronouns and your gender identity. And I know it's frustrating to have to correct people. I know that's not or shouldn't be your responsibility. But if it is something that is important to you, then I'm just having a little bit of patience for those people that really want to get it right and just slip up sometimes. Hey, Dan, I'm calling in response to episode 788 to the caller who is in a long distance engagement and trying to figure out how to open up his relationship. I agreed with everything you said, but I thought there was one thing that was important that was sort of left unmentioned, which is, you know, please do not marry this guy until you guys have navigated this and ironed out some of the rules. It sounds like you're young, maybe even 22 years old. You don't live near each other and you haven't even agreed upon the basic structure of what your relationship looks like. On top of that, whether you, you know, lied to him or cheated or whatever it was that happened with the hookup app, it sounds like you guys have a lot to work through. And so I hope that you uh, take some time to do that before you decide to bring the government into your relationship. Hey, Dan, to the woman who had that one great night with the dude before he died. I'm a, I'm a guy who likes to get stoned. I like grunge music. I like to fuck. I'm afraid of death. I got health problems. You feel however you feel, but there is no better way to spend a last night on earth than the way that man spent his last night on earth. And we're going to leave it there. Got a question for next week's show or a comment about the advice I gave on this week's show? The best way to get us your questions and your comments is to use the Voice Memo app on your phone to record your question or your comment and then email it to us at voicemail at savagelovecast.com. You can also call us at 206-302-2064. We prefer the voice memos, better sound quality, but we love your calls, however you choose to get them to us. The new year is coming up, and so is the new installment, the next installment of Hump, the best dirty little film festival in Texas and every place else. Tickets are now on sale for the opening of the Hump 2022 Festival, which kicks off in January in Seattle, Portland, San Francisco, and Olympia. Those premier showings of the Festival of Hump are really, really fun. So if you can get to any of those cities, please do come and join us. And audiences in Seattle, Portland, San Francisco, and Olympia get to vote on the festival winners. And I, in person, will be hosting many of the opening shows live and in person and triple vaxxed. Go to humpfilmfest.com right now for tickets. Follow me on Twitter at FakeDanSavage. Follow Dr. Ashley Winter on Twitter at Ashley G. Winter. The Savage Lovecast is produced every week by Nancy Hartunian and me and the tech savvy at Risky and Nancy. We'll all be back at you next week when I'm installed into the Savage Lovecast. Thank you for downloading.